Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the January 20th, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of current events and politics from the perspective of IAN's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and hopefully dropping in for part of the show, at least today, is going to be cartoon boss Faustin. We have to see if he's able to uh, get away from a task that he's doing right now. Uh, today's show, what I have planned for you is the following. First, I'm going to take a different question on the gun control issue. I'm finally going to talk about gun control. Why? Because I found a question that really hasn't been discussed very much that I found interesting out there on the so-called interwebs, namely Facebook. And here's the question. Is it valid to argue today, given that we're not ready for a revolution, uh, for the right to private gun ownership on the grounds that private gun ownership may be needed someday in the future to protect ourselves from the government. And then in addition, I'm going to look at Obama's executive orders and talk about gun registration and other government collection and retention of information about gun ownership. Is is that harmless as well? So I hope that you'll be interested in the issue from the angle that I'm looking at it. Uh, We could talk a little bit about uh, Lance Armstrong, I think that's an interesting topic as well because I've seen friends of mine on Facebook go both ways. They say, oh, everybody doped. So what's the big deal? Armstrong is still a hero. And then some people say, no, he is a liar and a cheat and a horrible person. I'd be interested to get some of your takes on that. A little bit on Bill Gates and his attitude towards his money, uh, so-called food porn. And then at the end, I'm going to continue our 2013 trend of ending with a few items of good news. So speaking of which, since that is sort of a little resolution of mine, which is to end this show with a little bit of good news each time, no matter how bad the politics is each week, how is everyone out there doing with New Year's resolution? Anybody have a resolution that they're happy about the progress that they're making, that sort of thing? I think I told you guys last week that one of the things that I thought was valuable was each day at the end of every day doing similarly to what I do at the end of each show now, which is try to think of a few good things that went well that day. You could put it as you're grateful for certain things, however you want to put it, but focusing on a few positive things at the end of each day, writing them down and, uh, you know, kind of recording them. And that kind of helps to change your focus. And I think it's especially important where we've just got Obama reelected. Every, all the news just seems so negative and horrible all the time. If you can, sh- you know, shift your focus just for a little bit of time each day on three positive things, I think that's good. Uh, in the chat room, we've got uh, Deborah saying she's got great progress, but she didn't say exactly what it is, but I take her word for it, given what I've heard about what Deborah accomplishes before. Stephanie says her New Year's resolution was to take vitamins every day, and she's been doing it, so this is good. Um, and she also says she's getting her Rule 7.08 guidelines done, which I'm some kind of legal thing, I think, but I have uh, no idea because I think it's not U.S. and not that I would know what 7.08 is in a rule of civil procedure here either. Anyway, not my specialty. Uh, If your resolutions, as mine do, also involve writing, I'm going to remind you another time that Don Watkins, who is the co-author of Free Market Revolution, has an upcoming writing teleseminar. It's called Mastering the Art of Writing. And it's going to start on February 2nd. It's going to be an hour each Saturday on the 2nd, the 9th, and the 16th from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific time. 
And what he wants to do is he wants to teach you the craft of writing. It's a skill that he insists can be learned. It's not just that you have talent or you don't. And there's a number of interesting topics that he's promising to cover. I'm going to be attending. Maybe you're interested in it, too. Go to Don Watkins' page on Facebook, D-O-N, first name, Watkins, W-A-T-K-I-N-S. Again, he works for the Ayn Rand Institute. He's co-author of the best-selling book, Free Market Revolution, with the head of the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook, so he knows that of which he speaks. So let's go ahead now and get started on our topic. And again, my angle, actually, and I, what I do is I have to credit someone on Facebook because there was someone who was discussing this topic on Facebook that raised the issue and got me thinking about it. And uh, this person said, uh, he was kind of complaining about a particular article. I think it was an article by Diane West, and he gave it as an example of someone who was arguing for private gun ownership for the time when you're not happy with the government. And then he said that he had been struck by how many objectivists or you know people who follow Ayn Rand's philosophy, how many of them conflate, put together, or can't distinguish between two issues. One is the right to private gun ownership for self-defense. The second is the notion that government should protect our right to own guns to protect ourselves from and to resist the government. And he thinks, you know, what he's saying is that it's bad to conflate these two rationales for gun control. And he says he thinks that this is what Rand herself was trying to counter in her statement and this is the statement from Rand, which was from one of her Q&As. Uh, she said that the the gun control and the registering of guns is, quote, not an important issue unless you're ready to begin a private uprising right now, which isn't very practical, end quote. And then uh, this person on Facebook goes on to say, if you think it has become practical, then go ahead and start stockpiling your guns. Get ready for that revolution. He says, but don't crusade for a change in government policy which you regard as equally important to resisting censorship, because a lot of people say Second Amendment, First Amendment, both equally important. And he says, don't also claim that private gun ownership is going to the means is going to be the means by which you protect free speech. So, granted, it's not time for revolution right now, right? Um, but nonetheless, do you think it might be proper to argue for gun ownership? Partly on the grounds, you know, partly on the grounds of self-defense, obviously, but also partly on the grounds of the fact that you need to have guns if you're someday going to resist an immoral, no longer rights-respecting government. So what do you think? And you can call in if you want to discuss this topic. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Or here in the chat room, I would just love to hear your take on it. Uh, Stephanie in the chat room says, isn't the self-defense issue embracing defense against a government gone mad? Uh, Stephanie, really, the self-defense issue, as I understand it, is that even though we delegate to the government and we properly delegate to the government the right to use physical force in defense of us, that within that scheme, there is still a role for us to own, you know, a handgun or some sort of similar type of weapon that we could use in exigent circumstances when the police are not going to be there for, as I think the Sandy Hook, uh, you know, Newtown massacre, it, it took 20 minutes for the police to get there. That is far too long, right? So if somebody had a gun there, you know, could have shot the gunman dead, and that would have been good. And I think this is within a proper uh, society, yes, you've delegated to the government, but you have a limited right to self-defense. In these exigent circumstances, somebody invades your home, you have a gun in your home, you should be entitled to go ahead and use deadly force if necessary to protect you, your family, your friends, etc. cetera. Um, so let's see here in the chat room. What do they say? So Richard in the chat room, Richard S., says, dang, it's never time for revolution. You know, th this is one thing you could say is that at least, you know, the way that our government's been going, it has been 
increasingly violating our rights. The trend is for ever-increasing violation of our rights. And so that we can certainly project that if we stay on this path, it's going to be time for revolution, maybe within our lifetimes, right? So this is an issue for some people. But nonetheless, you could say, do you expect the current government which would insist, oh, no, you know, we still respect your rights and everything. You know, even if we're way down the slippery slope, the current government is going to say, no, we're not going to go all the way. Uh, you know, you your rights are going to be secured. But, you know, we just want to curb your free speech a little bit here. We just want to, you know, control health care over there and et cetera, et cetera. Um, even if they insist that, do you think that nonetheless this government should be persuaded in part by an argument that you are entitled to keep guns so that if someday the government does turn completely bad and it is time for revolution, that you should be able to protect yourself. That is my question. I want to see here. Now, uh, someone who calls him or herself P. Galt in the chat room is, uh, the issue is not preparation for revolution, but rather force the government to take vocal opposition seriously. Clearly, a popular armed revolution will lose. Uh, yes or no? I mean, if every single person in our country was armed, do you think a popular armed revolution would lose? I mean, I know that our founding fathers, they, uh, you know, conducted a revolution against great odds. Yeah, we've got drones and all that kind of stuff. But if we have smart people and enough individual firearms, seems like there's a lot that could be done and that that would at least be an actual check. Um, people in the chat room say yes. Uh, and people in the chat room are also questioning P. Galt as to whether all of us being armed couldn't do something. Uh, yeah, we beat Iraq in four days. That's true. Uh, but I don't think Iraq, everybody was armed there. Okay, Zach says, the res the revolution argument is ridiculous. People need to stop making it. It's about the right to life. So I think Zach is on board with the idea of the person who was posting on Facebook, which is that we should be arguing for the right to bear arms and against gun control solely on the grounds that we have the right to defend ourselves. Uh, and it's in the exigent circumstances against criminals, not against the government. Interesting. Let me see what else. Anybody else? I mean, really, I actually have a question about whether this is correct. Um, so I'm actually, I think, going to disagree a bit with Zach here. I don't see a reason why you couldn't have an argument made to a good government that you have no intention of revolting against now that nonetheless, part of the rationale for our rights to keep guns privately, to have private ownership of guns, is because the government might someday turn bad. And I, I'm not just saying this because right now the government is on the grounds to being, you know, on, on the way to being bad, that it's on the road to being bad. But, but why not? I mean, w wouldn't a good government today want to help us preserve our rights to protect ourselves from a government that does in the future go too far. Larry in the chat room says that the government is less likely to round up an armed citizenry. Uh, was John, John in the chat room says it's difficult to say. Would our army fire on U.S. citizens? Uh, and he says Glenn Beck would recommend in that case just to surrender and then fill the jails to overflowing. I guess that's another way to uh, defeat them. Yeah, now let's see. Uh, Odegaard in the chat room says that if it comes down to revolution, it will succeed only if the National Guard and military units go over to the rebels. Enough people owning guns is essential to getting it off the ground, though. I've got a couple calls coming in here, so I'm going to go ahead and pick one up. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hi, Debbie. So what do you think on this issue? I, I don't necessarily see a, a reason why you couldn't use this as part of your argument against gun control. Why Why couldn't you? I don't see why not. I mean, I think that it certainly is valid to say that you need the, you need to be armed for, for just self-defense against private, you know, 
private criminals, if you will, just if someone were to break into your house or start shooting up your elementary school or whatever the case may be, that's that's certainly valid. And I don't think that's mutually exclusive. I don't think you, it has to be either or, that, that your rights for to own a gun are based only on the one and not the other. I, I, I do think that it makes sense for for the purpose of defending oneself against uh, a tyrannical government. Um, one thing, somebody posted on Facebook uh, a discussion about how the Khmer Rouge um, systematically went, they first registered and then went to all the homes of, of the people who own guns, of private citizens, before they implemented their, uh, you know, genocide basically against the people. But first they confiscated all the guns. Right. You know, I mean, there are historical precedents for this sort of thing, and, and and I do think that it makes a difference. So you're basically on on my side, as far as you can tell. Well, yeah, again, I've already I've revealed my deck. I'm a really poor poker player. I've already said that I'm basically skeptical of this argument that you can't use both rationales even today when you agree that it's not time for a revolution. By any means. So what I'm going to do, Deborah, is I'm going to put you on hold. I've got another caller. I'm going to see if the other caller is going to disagree, and we'll see if we've got a, a debate going here or not. Okay, one second. Hi, who's this? This is Tom. Tom. So what do you? Think yes, ma'am. Well, I got a question for you. Would you like a quote from the founding fathers? Let's see: Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason. All of them made arguments like I'm making that part of the rationale for the right to bear arms is because you want to be able to resist a government should it go bad at some point. They don't want to be left in the same situation that they were left in under King George, right? Uh, right, although uh, in my reading uh, with what Walter Williams wrote about it, I think that was Walter Williams, there's no indication that it was for anything other than specifically for self-defense and defense against an uh, oppressive government. So it was those two rationales. Uh, probably hunting as well would be part of the the rationale in there as well. So well, that's that's something that's private. That's not something that's a physical threat. No, no, of course, but that would be another yeah. uh, you know right to support your life through something which is hunting whereby you can get food for yourself, et cetera. So essentially you agree with me that it would be a, an additional valid grounds to argue against gun control that you would maybe at some point in the future need to resist a tyrannical government. Oh, well, that's what the founding fathers said. Now you can go further than that and go to statistics, and statistics show that People uh, are in areas where gun control is removed, crime drops uh, to a major extent, and right. where gun control is. Right, right. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there. So, but really, that the statistical stuff, you know, kind of balancing the individual's right against the collective right, et cetera, we're not really going to be looking so much at that rationale. I, I agree with Harry Binswanger that really that's not the, the way to come at the argument. The way to come at the argument is what rights do you have and specifically what arguments are valid to be making against a current government that wants to initiate more gun control laws? Is it simply that it's self-defense or is it self-defense plus hunting? Is it only hunting um, or is it also validly this idea that you might need to resist a tyrannical government someday. Now, I do have a third caller on hold here, but I don't have a little question indicator from this caller, so this may be dead airtime. We'll try. Okay, here we go. We got a question indicator. Excellent. Hi, who's this? Hi, my name is uh, Hugh. I'm calling from Virginia. So, what do you think about this issue? Is it valid to argue against gun control? on the grounds that you may someday need to resist a tyrannical government, even if that time is not now? Well, our founding fathers put it in as a right for us to bear arms. Now, where it gets a little silly is these kinds of incidents putting the wrong focus on the gun control. I mean, there's no reason why you have to have a submachine gun to go deer hunting. So using a little common sense, number one, 
is the most important thing. But uh, suppose they got every gun away from everybody. There you have your tyrannical government, so now they can do whatever because you. But then again, look at the nuts in the world. Uh, people forget about them, and that's what we're facing are these nutcases, the copycats, and all the things that get them all crazy in the head. Uh, look at a simple example of Reverend Jim Jones down in Guyana. He had a nice Kool-Aid party. There were no guns there. There were some guns, but uh, a lot of them voluntarily drank his Kool-Aid. So right. let's get to the real root of every problem and start with the word abuse, and it all starts with yourself. Learn to project into the world after learning how to love yourself a little bit more peace and love into the world and then look at those who are causing the wars because there's people behind the scenes munition makers making money on both sides they laugh okay this is starting to smack a little bit of some conspiracy theory about munition makers causing wars and such like that it's not quite where I go with this show, I'm sorry, but let me reiterate the question and, and give me a yes or no answer. Uh, you think, like the Founding Fathers did, that it is valid to argue against gun control, not for having, you know, massive weapons, you know, but having handguns, maybe, you know, some good automatic or semi-automatic, you know, enough weapons that would just be of the type to defend yourself or perhaps defend yourself against a tyrannical government someday, but nothing like a nuclear weapon. My question for you is, yes, do you agree that that's a valid argument to make, even though we're not getting ready for revolution today? So uh, so what do you think about that, Hugh? I would agree completely, and I used to be a gun owner. I don't have a need for it. I don't hunt anymore, but I'll tell you what, I have higher powers that take care of me. So let's go again with a whole new paradigm of peace and love and stop this baloney. Let the people have their arms and let's get the nutcases that uh, focused on and taken care of because they're all over the place. I mean, I, I definitely agree, Hugh, with you that part of the problem is that we are perhaps too tolerant of people who have serious mental issues, and that could be part of the reason behind this. If, if we would commit more people um, like the uh, perpetrator of the Newtown Massacre, that would be a, a good step in the right direction. Hugh, thanks for calling, for being a first-time caller here, and for sticking your neck out. So I have three people who essentially agree with me. There's one thing that I want to distinguish, and I think I'm going to go back maybe uh, to Tom on this one, because it's one thing to say that the Founding Fathers argued a certain way. Uh, and then it's another thing to say that you yourself believe that's also the, the right way to go. So, Tom, what do you say about that? Well, for one thing, and talking about revolution, that's highly impractical simply because of the amount of firepower and the training the military has. And I've had a lot of the military training. So that's not a terrifically good idea to think about. You're going to have to have the fight much before anything gets to that point. Okay. And it's going to have to be an intellectual, moral argument. First off, it's private property. Second, it is necessary for self-defense. And it's a practical matter, as I said, in areas where there's been severe gun control and it's been lifted crime drops precipitously, and places where you have had ownership of guns and that's taken away, crime greatly increases, including crime with guns. Right. So you Right, and so so all the statistics will will show that that is the case. Um, I'm gonna uh, go to Zach in the chat room. I wish Zach would actually call in because he is the one who's telling me that I'm all wrong. He says your premise is all wrong, Amy. He says so. Should we become doomsday preppers because one day the world could end? My answer is uh, no, not unless you actually think that there is a good possibility or probability that it will uh there's that issue um but i mean do you agree zach yeah come on deborah says zach call in and debate with us yeah zach really should that would be great but uh you know zach we do have evidence that this government is on the track towards becoming tyrannical okay um if 
if the trend continues, we are going towards total statism. Okay, and I mean, they've just taken over one-sixth of the economy through the healthcare industry via Obamacare. Obama was, I guess, technically re-inaugurated you know, inaugurated again today. He's going to be sworn in again tomorrow. People in this country have elected this guy to two terms, and he's this guy who's so self-important that he puts out 23 executive orders on gun control, I think just to show that he can. This is getting you know, a bit scary. Now, I'm not a uh, conspiracy theorist. I don't I do not think we're at the point now, but I do think that we have evidence that someday it's going to happen. Um second thing I need to make clear is that I'm not saying that you should argue for guns or the type of, you know, high caliber weapons that would be necessary to resist the government, but what I'm saying is that one of the arguments for you owning a weapon that is appropriate for your self-defense and exigent circumstances against criminals, right? Uh, one of the rationales is that if we have an armed citizenry, the total of us, even if we all only have handguns, are going to be able to resist the government if it becomes bad someday. Uh, Zach, let me give you another argument and see if you still think I'm all washed up. You know, we delegate our right to self-defense, to the government. We delegate it to them. It is not, you know, I'm not a contract theorist, so to speak, you know, that we're making this contract, but it is sort of like a contractual arrangement. And if we write a contract with somebody else, right, we write a contract that will protect us in the case of default. We don't expect the other party to default in a contract, but we know that no rational person would expect to be able to make a contract with you where the stakes are high and where you don't put into that contract some sort of a default clause, something that you are going to have the right to in case of default by the other party. And similarly, I say we delegate our right to self-defense to the government, right? We retain only the right to defend ourselves in certain exigent circumstances where the police can't get there and we're alone and, you know, et cetera. That's all we have. But it's on the grounds that the government continues to be the type of government that respects and protects individual rights. And so we have sort of a default clause in the background that one of the things we can do with this gun that we have, and again, you know, you shouldn't have the right to nuclear weapons or, you know, I don't know exactly where you draw the line. You're going to have to draw a line somewhere. I don't think the concept of assault weapons is useful in any way, shape or form, but you draw a line at a certain caliber, you know, capacity of magazines or who knows what it is. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not a gun expert, but, you know, certainly you could have a semi-automatic pistol or something and you're not going to call these uh, assault weapons. But, um, you know, you have that weapon and part of the rationale in the back of your mind is, okay, government, if you go bad someday, this is one of the things that I get to have this weapon for. And I think any proper government, similarly to any person with whom you are contracting in a contractual private situation, right, is going to know that you need to have protection in case of default. And that's what I see this about. So I don't see that it's invalid to argue on those grounds today, even though you don't think the time for revolution is now. You don't even think it's imminent. But you could see that someday in the future, if we continue on the trend that we're on, especially, but even if not, right? I mean, the founding fathers were using these sorts of arguments at the nation's founding where everything was beginning full of promise and we have the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, uh, actually, Bosch had a great tweet earlier this week and he asked, or I think he uh, he speculated that there would be no one in Washington today who would be willing to sign the Declaration of Independence. I mean, this is where we're at, right? But that was not true at the founding of this country. Everything was full of promise. And nonetheless, part of the rationale for the right to bear arms is to go ahead and uh, give people that back up protection, you know, this this in case of default, in case our government defaults on its responsibility to continue respecting and protecting our individual rights. And it is not respecting and protecting them now. So that that's kind of my argument. I don't see that it is incorrect now to argue that way. And I don't necessarily think, you know, and again, you know, trying to speculate what Ayn Rand was trying to 
say in a particular Q&A can be hard at times. So I don't know, but I don't necessarily read it this way. She, you know, she says it's not an important issue unless you're ready to begin a private uprising, blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, I, first of all, when she was saying these things, she they were way further back, you know, down the slippery slope than we are now, way up the slippery slope, if you want to call it that. We're a lot further down the slippery slope now, but you know, I, I the, the you know this idea of gun control and the registering of guns. I think it is important if you spend more time thinking about it, and I don't think it's just important only at the time when you're ready to begin a private uprising. I think that you can continue to even think about the potential of a private uprising or a, a private resistance of a tyrannical government even way before it happens. And I don't think it's an invalid argument at all. And I think, if, if anything, right, think about this, right? If the purpose of having these guns is to defend ourselves, self-defense, yes, we need to defend ourselves against criminals, but what entity has the potential to do even more damage than your standard garden variety criminal? Yes, even the people who do the Virginia and the Newtown massacres. It's the government, they are the ones who have the legal monopoly on the use of force. They get to dictate the rules under which we get a limited, you know, exigent right of self-defense. We are, to a large extent, legally disarmed in relation to the government. If anything, we need even more, you know, kind of insurance against that government gone bad, especially now. Government has drones. Uh, this is This is huge. So uh, Joe in the chat room says, are you referring to the snippet on guns from Ayn Rand Answers? Yes, I am. I'm taking a very tiny snippet from it, which was appearing on Facebook. So, yeah, there's a book called Ayn Rand Answers, the best of her Q&A, which is excellent, highly recommended. Go to Amazon and pick it up if you haven't yet. There's a lot of good stuff. What I'm saying is, though, sometimes if there's something that Rand didn't write about extensively, it I think objectivists reasonable objectivists can disagree about, you know, what exactly she was trying to get at there and how exactly Rand would answer the question that I asked at the beginning of the show as I posed it, which is, is it okay to go ahead and make this argument against gun control, you know, for the right to bear arms, partially on the ground of the need to maybe someday in the future uh, resist against a, a tyrannical government. I think any good, honest government now would not begrudge you your right to have a private weapon, nothing huge, no, you know, no massive caliber things, no rocket launchers or whatever. I don't know. Again, I don't know weapons that well, but, um, you know, you're not going to have nukes or whatever, but nonetheless, to have the type of weapon that's appropriate for individual self-defense in part to resist the government if someday it goes bad. And, you know, and if you think you're against that, then why not also be against having a contract, a high stakes contract in which a lot of your money is invested with no default clause. You don't expect the other guy to default, right? Only if you expect the other guy to default, would you put a default clause in a contract? No, not so. Businessmen all the time who love to deal with each other, who repeatedly deal with each other, they will drive a hard bargain and they'll put those default clauses in the contract saying exactly what happens if the other person doesn't follow through with what he promised. So um, Debbie has some follow-up comments I hear here in the chat room. So Debbie, what what do you got? Yeah, just I was just kind of thinking about this while I was on hold, and um, and I think that maybe there's there's a psychological component to it as well. Like if the government were to ban and confiscate guns, that just and if people accepted it and 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 said, "You're right, I don't have the right to defend myself against government." Um, it, it's just it's like making a statement that we're in a kind of a submissive state. Uh, relative to the government and and that we just are handing our lives control more control of our lives over to them in a certain kind of fundamental way and um and I think that would be really unhealthy just as for for the society I think it would vote very poorly for it uh, so 
um, I don't know, maybe it's kind of a subtle thing. I'm still kind of trying to chew on it, but I think that that's actually a really important component. It's like just saying, okay, we give up, we submit. And there's something about that that I think would really be an invitation to people who want to advance tyranny to, to do so more. So, so basically you're saying that because we do still have the right to bear arms and we could potentially all individually be owning guns, that that is somehow at least a subtle subconscious check on tyranny as well. Yeah. It's, it sends, it, there's a certain kind of individualistic um, mentality that goes along with that with an armed populace that's saying, you know, I'm the master of my, my universe and, uh, and and if and if the whole the population or a majority of the population said no you're right it's not for me to decide to have that control of protecting myself and the, and they hand over all their guns that's just it's kind of like a surrender in a certain sense and and I do think that that yeah that could encourage a, a, a lot I mean I think that it would be uh, an enormous encouragement to the people who want to advance tyranny. And I, I think that's true, and I think that the more control they have over guns, the more they feel like they are going to have license to take control in other areas as well. So I'm I'm definitely uh, afraid of that. Your your point, Debbie, thank you, is uh, definitely well taken, and people in the chat room are also loving it as well. Zach says we should stick to the right-to-life argument, and he says we need to argue on fundamentals, not concretes. Now, uh, you know, we are talking about the right to life, Zach, and we are talking about protecting our life against not just criminals, but potentially against a tyrannical government that could exist someday and that, in fact, we have a reason to believe might actually exist. We might even see it within our lifetimes. Who knows? No, it's not imminent now. No, I'm not a prepper or whatever weird conspiracy theorist stuff. But I don't think that this is a, a concrete argument that lacks in fundamentals at all either. Um, it, it's the right to self-defense against various potential initiators of force against you. And I, I, that's part of what the, the right to life entails. And uh, further to Debbie's point, you know, it, it, a proper government, I believe, would not say that you have no right to self-defense at all in any situation. You've delegated it to us, period, and stop, done. Uh, you know, you have a limited right to self-defense in exigent circumstances when police aren't there yet, et cetera. Um, yeah, sure, if the police could be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, then we wouldn't need it. Um, Zach says, don't have it because it's not a realistic argument. My argument's not realistic. If you have uh, you have to fear your government that much, there's no point in having one. So, so Zach, what I'm arguing by analogy though is that if you have to fear that the other guy is going to default on a contract, why ever set up a contract with anybody else either? Why trust anybody with so many resources invested in the other person performing the contract? So, for example, I am a promoter. Zach, tell me your favorite band. Quickly in the in the chat there, tell me what is, is your favorite band of all time. Yeah, Deborah says my she likes my contract analogy. The contract analogy is not focusing on co concretes. It's just telling you something uh, analogous. Now, I don't see Zach telling us what his favorite band is. So let's assume for whatever reason his favorite band might be Rush or something. I don't think it is necessarily, but suppose it is. So suppose you are a concert promoter and you make a contract with Rush. They are going to show up in New York City. They're going to play Madison Square Garden on a certain day. And you have invested tons of money in promoting that concert on the idea that they are going to come and play it. Now, yes, you're. Oh, he he says Soulfly is his favorite band. Okay, so let's make it Soulfly. So Madison Square Garden, Soulfly is going to come play. You're a concert promoter. You're investing time and resources into this event. You're going to make a ton of money off of it. You expect to, and then suppose they say, 
oh, sorry, I have a sniffle. I think I just don't feel like playing tonight. Horrible. <laughs> Stephanie in the chat room says Soulfly won't be playing Mass in Square Garden. Stephanie, that's not the point. That's not the point. But the, the idea is that we give a lot in uh, you know, contracts. We invest a lot in relying on the other person's performance. Why do that if you anticipate that they're going to default? You wouldn't. However, even though you don't anticipate that the band is going to default in my little scenario, you'll nonetheless put a default clause in the contract. Why? Because there is some small possibility. There is a possibility of significant enough magnitude to justify putting it in there. Similarly, there is a, enough of a possibility that government will turn tyrannical that it justifies having that check in the background that we are all allowed to have weapons appropriate for individual self-defense in exigent circumstances. You know, again, no, we're not supposed to all have private nuclear weapons. You can't have a drone, you know, whatever. But I think that it's enough of a reality because it's happened time and time again throughout history and we have a government right now that is routinely violating our rights that we could see it could happen. Um, so you need to go ahead and do that. Now, uh, P. Galt in the chat room says that default clauses will force some sort of conversation before physical force. I mean, it might just be that uh, if there is a default, then the defaulting party pays the other party a sum of money and that's it. It could be that they have to go to arbitration. Who knows? There's all kinds of different ways. But yeah, there's a lot of things that can be dealt with peacefully. But nonetheless, government, what is government? Government is essentially force. It is the entity that has the monopoly on the use of retaliatory force within a given area. That's what government has to offer, the use of force in the protection of our rights retaliating against those who initiate force. That's what government offers. So what do you need in order to deal with a government that's gone bad? If it's gone bad, it's gone bad in its use of force, which means it is initiating force against you. It is no longer restricting itself to retaliatory force, which gets me into my uh, next little topic, which is the issue of Obama's 23 executive actions. Uh, you can look for summaries of these executive actions all over the place. I happen to find one at news.blogs.cnn.com. It was published on January 16th, a few days ago. Headline is, Obama announces 23 executive actions, asks Congress to pass gun laws. I don't see anything in here in these 23 about having you register your weapons. But nonetheless, what I do see is a number of executive orders that are telling different people to share information, to collect data. Um, if you remember last week at the January 13th uh, show, we were talking about a provision of the Obamacare legislation that prevented the collection of information about gun ownership as part of Obamacare. I guess the NRA had bargained to get that inserted into the legislation. In one of these executive orders, Obama appears to try to undo that and say that as part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, doctors can indeed collect information. And then, of course, it's going to have all of the states and everybody else share, you know, so-called share information. So they won't necessarily require you to initiate the registration. But somehow, between sharing information among all these federal and state agencies, they can put together a database that will have information that's tantamount to gun registration. Uh, now, maybe he'll someday ask for gun registration as part of the legislation. I don't see that yet, but I do see in here the potential for the government to put together a database in which it could collect information as if it had gotten everybody to register, if that makes sense. Now, how can they do that? Uh, they do it because once you have shared information with a third party, that third party can share with the government. And in fact, the government requires 
these parties to share information with them all the time as part of various regulations. I talked about this in a prior episode of my podcast because I'm a so-called expert on uh, privacy. I'll say so-called and I'll let you judge for yourself at some point. But um, the this third party issue, the third party doctrine of privacy is the source of all sorts of evils and part of it is this. Um, Anyway, all 23 executive orders on my reading, some of them are just stupid and unintelligible. Uh, launch a national safe and responsible gun ownership campaign. Worthless. Um, none of this, of course, would have prevented the Newtown massacre. Uh, even the ones that talk about so-called mental health issues, you know, they talk about what sort of mental health coverage is required under the Affordable Care Act and under Medicaid. And let's just make it clear how much coverage is required. None of this would have prevented it. Somebody actually needs to seek the help. Uh, there needs to be maybe a revision on laws about how you can commit people, et cetera. So, um, you know, this this is nothing. But he, here's the, the question. If we talk about this idea of taking an individualist perspective and what we as individuals are entitled to vis-a-vis the government. Uh, Harry Binswanger had an excellent piece. It was actually January 1st, 2013 in Forbes magazine. He has a sub-column, I guess it's regularly called Market Justice. And his headline, Harry's headline, is With Gun Control, Cost-Benefit Analysis is Amoral. And he talks about rejecting this idea of statistics where you balance the individual's right to have guns versus crime statistics and things like this. We all know that crime statistics are better when individuals own guns, but that's not the point. The point is, and this is what uh, Harry Binswanger asks, he says, what laws should the individual be subject to? And he says, in particular, we should not be subjected to preventative laws. He says, the government cannot treat men as guilty until they have proven themselves to be, for the moment, innocent. He says, no law can require the individual to prove that he won't violate another's rights in the absence of evidence that he is going to. And he says, this is precisely what gun control laws do. Um, You have no specific evidence that a certain individual is about to commit a crime, but you require you know, potentially registration, sharing of information for a background check that is then going to be shared with the government, which is tantamount to registration. Um, He says, no, instead, and I'm skipping down a little bit, quote, the government may coercively intervene only when there is an objective threat that somebody is going to use force. What is an objective threat? He says, you need specific evidence of a clear and present danger to someone's person or property. And he says that even carrying a concealed pistol is not unless and until it is drawn. Um, And he says, yeah, there's borderline cases, et cetera, but you have to use a rational standard such as clear and present danger, and you don't look at statistics. Um, Statistics about a population is no evidence against you, et cetera. So I would say that these executive orders even – are tantamount to registration, and the government is overstepping its bounds. It's trying to prevent. And, in fact, the word prevent is in a number of those executive orders. Again, I refer you to go look at the list for yourself. Um, A a lot of them, you know, you say, oh, well, it doesn't sound like registration. Again, I think the database that they could put together using the information that is so-called shared uh, between the state and the federal agencies could be enough to give you something that's similar to registration. And then, of course, what happens? If there is a government database that exists anywhere, we have a Freedom of Information Act request by a newspaper or a blog, website, whatever. They get a hold of this database, and then they publish a list of gun owners in a certain area. And then what happens? The people who own guns might be targeted because they own guns. People want to steal their guns. Or... Criminals might use this database of all the gun owners in a certain area to say, oh, those people don't have guns, so I think I'll go ahead and try to rob them instead of the other ones who do. All kinds of mischief could be done. Uh, But the point is, is that unless there is specific evidence that you in particular pose a threat, government should not be doing it. That is preventative law. And it is not an individualistic approach. It is not an approach of a government that respects our rights. Um, 
Let's see what we got here in the chat room. Homicide rates in Chicago, yeah, where they have strict gun control. Yeah, gun control is prior restraint, says Tim. Yes, it is, and that is why. And even registering, even having to register, you could say even having to submit yourself to a background check, absent some sort of specific evidence that there's something wrong with you. I mean, think about this. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, Suppose they say, well, you have to register your gun. What other things are registered, quote-unquote, registered in our society? I was thinking of registered sex offenders. Gun ownership is like being a sex offender. You have to be registered if you're a gun owner. So just the mere fact of owning a gun is bad. No, I agree with Harry Binswanger on this. Not even carrying a concealed gun is in itself bad. It does not yet constitute an objective threat. It's only the brandishing of that gun that then constitutes the threat. You would have to have some sort of evidence that the person poses a threat. And you could, you know, of course, have evidence about the person's past violent acts, something about uh, their mental state that shows that they are an objective physical threat to people around them, then, of course, those people shouldn't have guns. And you'd say, okay, well, we have to do some sort of a check. Your name is is coming up or something. But only in, uh, you know, a a database that would have people who say you are an objective physical threat, Uh, not, for example. I mean, there was, I just saw a story this week. West Point put out a shaky study uh, that sort of said, well, there's these right-wing extremists who might pose a threat. Suppose you're on a database. I mean, I'm going to be on a list of some database somewhere as some sort of an extremist, and then you think I shouldn't be able to have a gun. That's ridiculous. So um, there, it has to be, if you're going to check a, somebody's name against a list, it has to be a list of people who have been shown to pose an objective physical threat to people around them. And then you might say, okay, it's worthwhile checking them against that. But otherwise, it is if the government is requiring background checks that go beyond that or requiring the registration of a gun, requiring a license for you to have a concealed carry, for example, they are engaging in preventative law. They are initiating force uh, against you. And this is, again, all going back to the idea that we have the right to defend ourselves in certain limited circumstances, even though we delegate primary responsibility for self-defense to our government. So I think I've uh, pretty much exhausted this this topic, but uh, other objectivists have written a lot of good stuff. I think Richard Salzman has written some, uh, also Dr. Hurd has written some on on the gun control issue as well. So go ahead and and look at those. But I I was really struck uh, by Harry Binswanger's argument. A few other little stories here. Uh, there's a Bill Gates interview you can go check out at the Telegraph UK, published today, Sunday, June 20th. Bill Gates says, I have no use for money. Instead, he is using his money to engage in what he calls, quote unquote, God's work, which is the eradication of polio. And, uh, you know, there's there's some things about what he says in terms of donating a lot of his wealth that he is is above the amount for which he has a reasonable use to worthy causes. And I do think the eradication of polio is a worthy cause, and I do think it has the characteristic that he points out in the interview, which is that uh, with respect to polio, once you get an eradication, you no longer have to spend money on it. It's just there as a gift for the rest of time, end quote. So he's saying, I want to have the most bang for my buck. If I can help eradicate polio, then we can have that gift go on perpetually, not just you know during the time that he's pouring money at it. So that's good. But when he talks about having to help the poorest in the world, which he does, uh, this emphasis on helping the poorest all the time and not necessarily helping people who maybe need some help aren't necessarily the poorest, aren't necessarily the richest, but are the most deserving in the sense of showing demonstrated potential to go out there and achieve great things, perhaps. Don't just have poorest be the litmus test. I, I, I think that's uh, that's really sad. So Bill Gates, I think I would love to see him focus more on the entrepreneurial innovation that he did like with Microsoft and less on trying to make his mark by giving away his money to the poorest 
people in the world. Um, P. Galt in the chat room says, why can't he just be honest and say that it makes him feel good to help people and that's what he gets out of it? I agree. I mean, go ahead and, and help people. But I think also help struggling entrepreneurs like himself. Help somebody become the next Microsoft. And then you don't necessarily even have to give them money. You just invest money. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to do? To create then so much wealth in the world that maybe other people could eradicate polio. I could imagine that Bill Gates himself, that his unique talent that he should spend more time on is not necessarily eradicating polio, but uh, going out and evaluating the venture capital proposals that various wannabe entrepreneurs have out there. He could look and say, I think this is a real business prospect or not. Why? Because he himself was such a tremendous success. So I would follow um, you know, a lot of the success literature authors out there and say he should spend his time doing the things that he is best at. And if he wants to go ahead and put his money at risk because he's got a whole bunch of money that he doesn't necessarily need to spend himself, why not do it that way and create even more wealth that could then be given away later by people whose, you know, jobs maybe are better at, at giving away. So that's Bill Gates. Another story that I want to talk to you about, and Richard in the chat room is is, uh, holding me to my promises here, food porn. This was a story that was linked to on the Dredge Report, and it's a headline. I think it's just a Reuters. Yeah, it's a Reuters story from Friday, January 18th. The headline is Cheesecake Factory Pasta on the list of caloric, quote-unquote, food porn. There's a Cheesecake Factory pasta dish. It has shrimp and other interesting things. Uh, It has more than 3,000 calories in one serving that they serve you at Cheesecake Factory. It's more than a day and a half of the recommended caloric intake for an average adult. And they said, this Reuters story says that this is among the headliners on this year's extreme eating list of the most unhealthy dishes at U.S. chain restaurants. And then they said that this Center for the Science and the Public Interest, a consumer-focused nonprofit group, compiles an annual list of quote-unquote food porn to alert customers to menu items with eye-popping levels of calories, saturated fat, sugar, and or sodium. Now think about this, okay? First of all, there is disagreement about how bad saturated fat actually is. I don't want to go into the whole debate, but um, the other thing is, uh, who is anybody to talk about, you know, and compare food to pornography? Now, then, of course, there's certain types of pornography that I think would be, you know, a, a legitimate augmentation to a good rational life. There might be a legitimate use of porn. But, you know, they try to say food porn because they try to say it's bad. You know, eating this food is bad. You should avoid this food. They want to shame Cheesecake Factory into even offering this dish. It could be an extremely delicious dish that you would treat yourself to on a birthday once a year, some sort of an occasion, and you're not sitting there eating this all the time. You know, what what they're trying to do, what these food police are doing, is they're trying to shame these restaurants out of offering all this wonderful, yummy stuff that people are totally capable of enjoying responsibly and they want to ruin their lives. So I just point you to that. I reject this this term of food porn. Uh, a, you know, again, we could talk about, I guess, porn another time. Not that it's really a topic I want to do a show on, but, you know, trying to, to disparage food as being bad, I totally disagree with. Uh, a few items of good news. While I was on Dredge Report, I saw an ad a big ad for Frack Nation. I thought that was good news. Uh, Something else, I saw Fox News Sunday this morning, the show with Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace made Obama's advisor very uncomfortable by asking him very pointed questions. Uh, Some of them were about the fact that that, uh, Al-Qaeda was supposedly decimated, and yet here is Al-Qaeda in northern Africa, uh, committing all sorts of horrible terrorist attacks, and Leon Panetta is saying that Leon Panetta is saying Al Qaeda is a clear and present danger still. Uh, then there is a poll. You can see it at firstread.nbcnews.com, January 17th. It's an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that says the NRA 
is more popular than the entertainment industry. Now, granted, I think it's bad that the entertainment industry is worthy of being less popular than the NRA. I mean, the entertainment industry is bad, but I'm glad at least that the NRA is more popular. Uh, something that might be good news, a Steve Jobs biopic that's coming out in April, and we'll talk about other things next time. So I gave you some good items at the end, okay? I, I really did. Uh, we are at the end of our show. If you like this show, please go ahead and click follow here on Blog Talk Radio. You might notice that I'm actually a featured host on Blog Talk Radio right now. They actually chose it based on listening to my show. So thank you, Blog Talk Radio, if you're listening. You can join the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook if you want to keep up with me during the week. You can leave comments on this particular show either on Blog Talk Radio. They give a facility there for you to leave comments. Or you can go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com where I have a post for each show and you can leave comments there as well. Twitter, but most importantly, if you like the show, please spread the word. The show spreads by word of mouth, and my mouth is only so big. Thank you, and good night.